This is CSAP Science and Policy Podcast, where we're bringing you the latest evidence and expertise to improve public policymaking. This week, we're proud to present the 11th episode in our series on science, policy, and pandemics. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Cambridge Infectious Diseases and the Cambridge Immunology Network. In this episode, our host, Dr. Rob Doubleday, and guest host, Selma Shaw, are joined by Professor Frank Kelly and Lord Alistair Darling, Baron Darling of Rulinesh. Hello and welcome to CSAP's Science Policy Podcast. I'm Rob Doubleday, Director of the Centre for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge, and I'm very pleased to say that this week I'm joined again by my co-host, former government advisor Salma Shah. Hello, Salma. Hello. Today we're looking at the role of scientific advisors to government, which is under the spotlight as never before. It's easy enough to think of science speaking truth to power, but as the government's efforts to tackle coronavirus pandemic demonstrate, science is often evolving and uncertain, and at a time when politicians are apparently relying on scientists not only to inform decisions, but also as trusted communicators, we're interested in in the nature of the authority of science and science advisors and who and how they are made accountable. We are also interested in how the relationship between scientist and politician works in practice. How important is trust? How is this built up? How much depends on the personalities of the people involved and how much depends on the nature of the decisions and the wider political context? We also want to explore how government can improve its use of science. So today we're delighted to be joined by two people who worked closely together for three years as advisor and advise. Alistair Darling, now Lord Darling, which I might say I think is one of the best names in the House of Lords, is only one of three people to have served continuously in Cabinet from 1997 to 2010, latterly, of course, as Chancellor. It's, however, his time as Transport Secretary from 2002 to 2006 that we are focusing on today. For three of those years, Frank Kelly was Chief Scientific Advisor at the Department for Transport. Frank is a mathematician researching random processes, networks and optimization, all of which seem potentially relevant to government, especially at the moment. Welcome to you both. Now, given your backgrounds and your working relationship, we'd love to explore some of your real-life examples from road pricing to data and from biofuels to climate change. We want to know how the relationship between science and politics works in practice and to think about, based on your experiences, how it can be improved. Casting minds back 15 or more years uh, to the Department for Transport and the early and the mid noughties, I want to start with the question of road pricing to explore some of the questions about how science and analysis and politics combine. So, Alistair, if I may, when you arrived as Secretary of State for Transport, you know, that was a time when, for example, congestion charging was being discussed. For, for London. How do you recall the sort of technical questions about what's possible interacting with practical questions of implementation and then the politics of, of what would be palatable? Well, I think you, you have to start with what's the problem you're trying to solve. And uh, when I became Secretary for Transport in 2002, one of the problems we had was very congested roads and all the forecasts were that this was going to be a problem that's going to become worse and worse. Now, conventionally, the way in which you deal with that is you build more roads. Now, I think many people had reached the view, myself included, that you couldn't do that indefinitely, either on cost or, importantly, on environmental terms. And therefore, I wondered whether or not, if you change the way in which we pay for the use of the road, so it varies according to the time you use it and uh, how often you use it, whether we couldn't find a more efficient way of operating what is inevitably a limited space. And that's where road pricing comes from. 
I may say at the outset that I remember saying at the time, it's at least 10 years away. Uh, this is 15 years later, and I, my guess is it could well still be 10 years away yet. But basically, what I wanted was advice as to whether or not this thing could work. Uh, which would radically change things. Of course, this is years before things like driverless cars, which I think makes the issue more relevant now than it was then were thought of. Uh, but what, what I was looking for is that sort of advice. And Frank, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what it was like to arrive as, as an academic mathematician into government to be thinking about transport at, at a time when kind of road pricing, congestion charging w- was back on the political agenda. It's interesting, just casting my mind back to that time. I mean, road pricing as a topic comes back into the media and into a political discourse about every 10 or 20 or 30 years. And it was Barbara Castle that I think in this country first raised road pricing. I suppose my own background in mathematics was concerned with um, modelling large-scale networks. Those were primarily communication networks previously, but transport networks and the problems of trying to manage congestion in large-scale networks was certainly something that intrigued me. What was happening around that time, 2003, I can remember the first time I met Alistair when, before I was appointed, I think the last stage of the appointment procedure was when we spoke, and it was quite guarded before I'd become a civil servant. And then a couple of weeks later, it was much less guarded. As soon as I was inside the department, then I was a civil servant subject to the Civil Service Code of Conduct and was part of every discussion that was relevant that was was going on. On and was treated as a civil servant. But the, the meeting we had was prior to that, and uh, we were both quite guarded. But one of the things I do remember you saying was that it, it, you were about to change the policy with respect to Ken Livingstone's scheme for a London congestion charge. And I thought that was quite interesting because it did seem to me that road pricing or some change in the way in which um, society uh, regulated and taxed transport had all sorts of benefits. And I think that's still true. That it's going to happen in 10 years' time. Many of these technological things are always about to happen in 10 years' time until they've then happened. I mean, if I, I can remember at the time when I was there, just to put it in context, Google hadn't had its IPO yet. We spoke about things like personal digital assistance and every attempt to get something like a personal digital assistant failed and the discussion then was that these things would be 10 or 20 years off until the iPhone arrived and then as soon as it had arrived it had arrived I suspect road charging or something like that would be similar it'll be 10 or 15 years away until we discover it was two weeks previously when you know, there's some innovation that suddenly makes it uh, uh, not called road pricing. It's, it's it, It'll be called something that, that gets the imagination and makes people feel positive about it. I'll tell you how it'll happen. If we ever get to driverless cars and you want to phone a car to take you to the supermarket or go somewhere, rather like getting into an aeroplane or train, you'll buy the equivalent of a ticket, uh, which will be priced as to what time of day you want it, how far you're going, and so on. And it's interesting, actually, in terms of development, you remember that one of the real political problems that we had 15 years ago was that people said this is an invasion of your privacy because they'll know exactly where you are. And yet today we're talking about an app that would report that you've been in contact with somebody who might have had the COVID virus uh, and you'll be tracked down and you'll be told to isolate. Uh, people will maybe accept that now because we're you know in the midst of an acute crisis. But, uh, you know, that would have been unheard of uh, 15 years ago. And indeed, one of the reasons that there was, you know, a wall of um, antipathy, certainly from a lot of the media at the time about road pricing, was in relation to the privacy. But, you know, now everybody's got a mobile phone and if they really want to track you down, it's not too difficult. Uh, that's right. I, I suppose one parallel between what's happening now and what happened then, it does concern that privacy aspect, because one of the debates is about a decentralized or centralized contact tracing app. 
And so Google and Apple have pushed a form of app that's decentralized so that government doesn't have a database. And the centralized app that NHSX is pursuing does have that centralized database, which has some advantages. For example, location and stuff like that can be detected and uh, acted upon. One of the interesting things I remember from uh, 2003 was that when we did investigations of public attitudes to privacy, the public overwhelmingly were, were unhappy with government having data about where their car had been and this, that, and the other. At the same time as they were quite happy with Norwich Union, the AA, and Vodafone having that information. Norwich Union were running a pay-as-you-go insurance scheme. The AA had various uh, schemes for tracking your vehicle in case it broke down. And Vodafone knew where you were if you had a mobile phone or something. And I was quite struck by the fact that the public's concern was to do with whether government could be trusted not to misuse the data, but but just to leave it lying on the train in an unencrypted CD or something, which was one of the scandals that happened around that time. So there's something about how the public view the competence of different different actors here. So, And I think that may still be the case now. People may be prepared for a decentralized app that's run by companies, which already collect vast amounts of data on them. They may prefer that to a, to a government-run system. I wonder if it would be the same today, because since in the last 15 years, of course, there's been a lot of controversy controversy about what um, Google and others know about each and every one of us. Um, I, um, my, my view of these things is that people tend to be pragmatic about it. If they can see a benefit, yes. you know, for example, if you take the current circumstances, there's clearly a benefit to know uh, that I've been in close contact with somebody who's got this virus, therefore I need to do something about it. I can see the benefit of that because that hopefully looks after my health. And indeed, arguably, if we'd had a proper testing scheme much, much earlier, you know, many of the, the tragically uh, dead would have been might have been avoided but you know I think there's another thing here that um, you know in relation to trust generally and that is people want to trust the people who are telling them to do something and I just think you know maybe looking at where you are today if there was far more openness about what why people were saying it's fit safe to do this or it's not safe to do that then it wouldn't be better uh, you know I'm just looking at the environment today you see all too often ministers appear to be hiding behind quotes scientific experts uh, and, and we're not being told on what basis does that expertise come from. A lot of this is opinion, uh, but it's a lot better. You know, I, th- I, would, you know, I think people are more open to receiving opinion if they have trust in who's telling the message, yes, but also they like to see the basis on which these promises or these claims are being made. Yes, I, I, I do think that's right. I, th- I think part of the, the issue here is concerned with uncertainty. I mean, one doesn't want to have a, a message that's too complex. But in this area of risk, then understanding uncertainty is, is really very important. I mean, just on the radio this morning, I was hearing discussions about is one meter safe or is two meters safe? And of course, that, that's not a very sensible question. Uh, uh, neither of them are absolutely guaranteed of safety, and it's a question of relative risk. So you can say, well, two meters is twice as safe as one meter, but then that doesn't actually tell you it if you don't know the absolute level of risk. Given this current situation, I mean, this is this is slightly unique in, in that the playbook is being written as we go because we've never had a, a pandemic like this. But um, Alice, you were talking about you know context and privacy concerns. How much did that sort of weigh uh, on you in terms of decision making when you were when you were thinking about road pricing? You know. 
how much did you factor in what the reaction of the media was going to be? Because I think a lot of listeners to this podcast would try and weight everything on the science and the evidence. And it's just, it, I think it'd be interesting for them to understand the other factors that you have to consider as a decision maker and as a politician that scientists don't necessarily have to factor in. Well, I think the first thing you always need to remember when you're a minister is that you are also a member of parliament. You've been elected, you're there to represent your constituents. And obviously you're a minister, uh, you're representing you know, a, a wider field if you like. Um, I also think you have to have some sense of what is doable. Can you sell something? You know, for example, at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, there were people who thought the British people will never take to the idea of being locked down that they were in China, you know, the earlier part of this year. Whereas now you'd say, if only we'd done it, then, you know, things might have been a lot better. But if you look at road pricing, you know, you can't just impose things on people if they can't see and they're not convinced that there is a good reason for it. Uh, there was, even 15 years ago, one of the insurance companies was offering you a cheaper deal if you only used your car, you know, at off-peak times. And if people can see the advantage, they're convinced of the reasoning, uh, then I think you're in with a shout of persuading people. Um, however, at the end of the day, you have to reach a judgment. You know, in part, me saying it was 10 years away was to give me, if you like, cover uh, to say, look, we need to examine all this, but don't worry, it's not going to happen to you tomorrow morning. Now, as things develop and things change, you can then perhaps return to the subject. And my guess is at some stage it will be. But at the end of the day, politicians are often criticised for many things, but you have to make a judgment call. Um, or if you look at what's happening today, it is a judgment call as to how you allow people to mix what risks you're prepared to take in relation to a second wave of this virus, um, you know, bluntly, um, what's the trade-off between health and the economy? That is never going to be, there's no facts that are going to persuade you on that. It's really, at the end of the day, it's judgment, it's opinion. And Frank, how does that, how does that then in play in the way that you provided advice, knowing that the minister had, had all these other factors to consider? Did, did, you, did you change anything in the way that you presented your advice or did you try and be as pure as possible? It's very difficult to be useful if you be as pure as possible, because I think much of the problem for science advice or technical or evidence-based advice of any type is that it may be too siloed. I mean, within the Department for Transport, I found that the people that were working on a particular science or technology question were very, very good, and their advice on that particular area was excellent. The difficulty comes that political choices, the actions of government, cover a whole range of interacting aspects aspects and those interacting aspects are where where things can get lost if for example a policy issue has got a clear science or technology or modeling um, aspect then the science advice is is clear and it, it, it's 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 at the top table but that's a very small number of issues the issues where it's not obviously a science question, but where science plays into it are the issues that where I think it's it, there's a problem. The, you know, the gaps between silos. So, for example, if one thinks of road pricing, Alice has, has described what the urgency or the immediacy of the issues over a year or two are. But when if, if systems like road pricing evolve over decades, and they evolve as a consequence of all sorts of changes, changes to databases, changes to legislation, changes to the technology that's in cars or in people's hands. And so structuring the architecture of a system, which is itself composed of many subsystems, so that the designers of the subsystems, the commercial companies or the government agencies that are implementing the subsystems, designing incentives so that those subsystems go in the right direction, so that they lock together properly 
so that the whole system works as a whole, is a very diff difficult architectural problem. And that's the sort of time scale upon which some of the scientific and technological thinking within the department needs to be. It needs to be, well, you know, what, what do we do this year and next year and the other that may look, look earth-shattering, but are going to provide the building blocks, the subsystems, which in later time will allow you know, a larger scale system to, so, so that the incentives are in place for all of the players to be pushing in the right direction. But I, I think it would be a mistake for uh, people to imagine that this is a situation where you've got ministers on one side of the table and scientists or advisors on another, and never the twain shall meet. Actually, it's an iterative process. What helped, certainly in uh, my case, was that I liked Frank and I trusted him. And he was also, you know, the sort of advisor that's always helpful. He was pragmatic. He knew there were some things you could do, some things you couldn't do, but he knew his subject above all. All the time, you know, if you look at it from the, the minister's point of view, you're having to make a judgment call. It doesn't matter whether the policy is road pricing or you know, a health issue, or economic issue. You've got to make a judgment call as to what you think is right. And at no time should you hide behind your advisor. You know, you should be say, saying, look, this is the advice we're getting. And on the basis of that, this is the conclusion I have come to. These things only work if both sides trust each other. At the end of the day, it's, you know, people, politicians are elected, ministers have to decide, they have to make the calls, and they have to answer for them. I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I, I, I didn't envy the position of the politician uh, a few times. And I think there's a distinction, too, between those scientific advisors who are civil servants, so the, 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 the chief scientific advisors in departments, and for example, chairs of external bodies which provide scientific advice. The former are, are as I was mentioning earlier, uh, civil servants in the same meetings with, with people and seeing the other evidence. And uh, it's easy for them to, to, to realize the difficulty the politician has in, in making the choices. They see not just the science advice, but the economics advice, the, the, the legal advice, all sorts of other advice. Sometimes people that are not civil servants and subject to the Civil Service Code of Conduct, they can't see that, of course. And so they input their science advice and whether it's accepted or not, appears to them rather opaque. It may be said we're following the science advice when it's unpopular and, and yet on other occasions it's not followed and so I, I think there's a there's a distinction to be made between science advisors that are civil servants but you know as I was for say three years you're, you're in and then you're out and the time you're in you're you're subject to the code of conduct about confidentiality and, and and everything I could see that if I was in the shoes of the politician that that I might well make the decision that ran counter to my advice I have to say one of the things I did very much enjoy about working with Alistair was that he explained why Alistair, if I may, it was very helpful in in your case that you trusted Frank. That that the fact that the fact that the technical advice Frank was giving you, you had some confidence in. But I'm interested in how how did you develop that trust? Why why trust Frank? You know, I, I see his experience really. And as you as you go grow older in life, you you can you just get a feel for whether you think somebody's competent, whether they uh, they know what they're talking about. Therefore, you you place a greater premium on the advice. All of us in whatever walk of life have come across people that after maybe thirty seconds you think, you know, I'm sorry, I don't believe a word you're telling me. It's just it's a matter of judgment at the end of the day. Uh, but but I think the important thing here is you know if you looked at it from the outside that you know the, you know I've just found over the years that you're more likely to take the public with you if you can explain why you're doing things. But you know it's really a question of being able to explain to people what was it that's happened, why did you take the decision you've taken, what are you going to do about it, and if people trust you 
and they've got to trust you as much as you trust your advisors, uh, then you can do it. What, what was very interesting about your time together at the Department for Transport was that you actually took this decision in terms of Transport Direct of opening up government data that gave rise to these amazing platforms like Google Maps and I suppose further extended down, you know, businesses and companies like Deliveroo and, and Uber. And I just wondered, Frank, first of all, if you could give us sort of a little explanation of Transport Direct, what it was, and then perhaps talk to us a little bit about how that idea came into being. It, it, it was sort of clear that if you that the amounts of money that we had to invest in public transport it seemed to me fairly clear straight away that that spending more of it on information technology and less of a, less of it on metal would would was the right economic decision to make that in in most departments of, of state the, the the economic arguments are important it's public money that's been spent and so I think it's very important for the for science advice in these sorts of areas that are concerned with technology or concerned with um, you know, operation of large-scale systems, you have to integrate well with the economists. You have to be able to make your arguments in their language as well as one's own language. So the economic case for, for information technology in various ways, collecting fares, providing security, providing route information, providing times of buses, um, you know, to begin with, it was going to be tricky because one has to establish the systems and because the research and development costs to begin with are where a lot of money goes. But it was obvious that long term, that would be the way that public transport would become more accessible and more um, attractive. We look back on it now and it seems like a totally obvious intervention. And, you know, we can't run our lives without looking at Google Maps. How receptive was the Whitehall machinery in the department to this, Frank, when you when you started pushing this? And then, Alistair, after Frank's answered, I'd love to know, you know, how did you react to it when you first you know, had the submission up about Transport Direct. So there was a lot of pushback. Now, the pushback was very often from the companies that had the data. They said that they wanted to commercialize it. They wanted to do this. They wanted to do that. That it was Kim Howells was the was a minister at the time. And I can remember him discovering that the bus companies wouldn't let us know where the buses were. You know, they said, "Well, we might sell this this data." Well, you know, you don't sell your bus timetable. That's advertising. That kind of example happened in lots and lots of places. So subsystems of the overall public transport system had perverse incentives that prevented them from sharing the data. So the advantage of Transport Direct was it was like a battering ram. If you had a problem with getting data, then you had the full backing of you know, with the buses, Kim Howells, to, to sort this out. Now, if you'd been a small startup, you would not have got past that point. You just couldn't have used the, uh, you, you wouldn't have had the time to wait. You wouldn't have had the legislative uh, and the contract power to, to do that. The US is better at understanding how to spend uh, quite large amounts of money establishing system architectures to begin with. And then recognizing that after a certain time, it's got to a point where you can design the subsystems, which can then be done in the marketplace. And Transport Direct was a small scale example of something similar. So, Alistair, did you did you get that sense when you first saw the submission? And did, did you understand the potential of it when you when you first came across the policy? I was an elected MP. I was a minister. I looked at the Transport Direct through the eyes of someone who travels. And one of the biggest frustrations that many travellers have is not knowing when the next bus is coming. Why is the train late? I had a, a predisposition, if you like. If someone knows this information and it can make my life as a traveller easier, then you know, let's tell everybody about it. But there's a second reason. Why spend millions and millions of pounds building a road that can, is possibly only congested you know, three, three or four times a day or even less than that? 
when if you could price things properly, you could encourage people to go off peak as people do on the railways or because you know the information. You know, and you know, Frank's right. The Americans were ahead of us on this. They know they, they they've got the information because we do know when people use roads and trains and so on. Then, by a combination of policy uh, and information, you can perhaps make things better, and you can get far more out of your transport system. Uh, you without having to spend vast sums of money. What would your average traveller want out of all this? If we've got the information, why not we tell people about it? And who knows who could use that information and exploit that in the proper sense of that word, the positive sense of that word, exploit that information to make life better for us. What were the political concerns for you? I mean, was it around, you know, could you trust private companies to be able to use data correctly? Did you worry about those kinds of things? Frankly, where a bus is any given point in the day is, you know, hardly a breach of privacy. Um, knowing where I am any time of the day, that, that's a slightly different issue. Did you recognise what you were opening up at this point? What you enabled and what you opened the door to is really quite phenomenal. It's always very tempting to say, of course, I knew all this was coming. But the truth is that people don't, because you don't know how it's going to evolve. What I'm, I'm clear about, though, is, you know, and this is rather like um, Tim Berners-Lee and his, the internet. His view was, if it doesn't need to be private, then make it public. Uh, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Looking back through these things, I, I, I think the various presentations I was making was claiming these wonderful things would happen. I guess I had the advantage that I'd previously been working on modeling communication networks. So the whole development of the internet, the way in which that that architecture had allowed all sorts of open source software, all sorts of development of, of the protocols, uh, developed collectively by people sharing information. What was the what was the problem? Was the user interface? What we did not understand at that time, or, or could not see, was how we'd solve this PDA problem. It was always called a personal digital assistant, and we hadn't. There was never one that worked. Every attempt to make it had the response not ready. Ten years time, and until the iPhone came along, and then. Almost overnight, there was a transition, and there was this stuff ready to go on it, ready for apps, ready for this, that, and the other. Alistair, if I may, I mean, you've described the role of a, of a, a Secretary of State as, as very busy, where you're taking some of the time, what you're doing is taking the perspective of the passenger, the user, the member of the public, and thinking about how whatever service the department's concerned with looks to that person, and you're applying your judgment because you're very, very busy, lots of different things are coming in, lots of different technical arguments are being made, and then you're applying your judgment to just kind of determine what course to take. Could you sort of think of times when the advice you've got from scientists has really frustrated you? Do you think that there can be ways that sort of the structures or the institutions of advice and government can be made to work better to make that more likely to happen? Or, or do you think we just we have the best system we can and it's just how it's operated that's sometimes better or worse? I think it's how it's operated. And I, I would say don't waste too much time trying to change structures and institutions because you'll you'll never do it in an acceptable timescale. And when you've done it, you'll probably discover whatever it was is out of date. Um, a right up-to-date example of this business of possibly quarantining people uh, when they come off an aeroplane into this country. Why was it? Why weren't we doing that three months ago when you would have thought that um, keeping people separate is the best way of suppressing the spread of a virus like this? Why didn't we do it then? Why are we doing it uh, now? And when the proposal was made, it, it, it wasn't going to come in for a further three weeks. Then all sorts of exemptions are being introduced, like fruit pickers coming into this country do not have to be tested. Someone coming back from business or holiday is. 
I would just like to know what the science is, because the government is saying it is scientific advice. Well, tell me what it is, and I can form a judgment. Or, or perhaps you give another example from today. What you're finding now is younger people um, have worked out they are at a lower risk group than older people and therefore are prepared, you can see from the pictures of what's going on all over the place now, they're more prepared to take risks and going to public places, you know, never mind, you know, two metres distance, you know, there's a lot less than that in some places. If we could see what the government is being told, and there's no reason why we can't, then that's, I've mentioned confidence and trust uh, a few times. That's the way to get it, where the government can say, this is the advice we're getting. And if they want to take a different view to the advice, that's fine, as long as you say why you're doing it. But at least let's see the basis of it, because otherwise you run the risk of people saying, I'm sorry, I don't believe you, or I'm not prepared to do what you're telling me because um, you know I don't think you're being straightforward with me. That's what I mean about making information available. And all of that is a matter of having the confidence and the ability to do that, you don't need to change structures. You just have to change your attitude, frankly. And, and yeah. so that you're saying that that requires, I mean, that's the democratic process. That's people, you know, that's accountability of the press, of, of the public. At the end of the day, uh, ministers, and I mean ministers, are accountable to parliament and MPs are, right, are accountable to their constituents. Everybody knows that mistakes get made. Things don't always work out the way you thought. But if you can explain why you did it, the basis in which you did it, and or why, you know, if we take, you know, today's environment, instructions are instructions or advice is advice. If we could see that, uh, and have confidence in the people actually, you know, um, you know, giving that message. That would be that would be very helpful. You know, and another sort of adjunct to this is it's interesting. You know, in the present time ministers appear flanked by experts, and the reason for that is because at the moment scientific experts are trusted more than ministers are. Ministers could restore trust by just being a wee bit more straightforward about what their thinking is. Uh, and if they did that, then it helps boost confidence. And actually, as a member of the public, you know, which I, I largely am, I would like to have confidence in the governments that there are today. I really would like to have confidence in them. And it would help, I think, if they were a wee bit more open. Yeah, I think I think that's um, the, the issue of trust uh, between all of the parties involved, the public and, and, and the politicians, as well as between the scientists and ministers and whatever. That's at the centre of it. I mean, I, over, for example, the quarantining issue, um, I, I guess that the simple kind of statistical lesson would be that if, if 500 people are arriving on a plane have got typically less infection than you have in the population, there's not much point. If they've got more infection, there is a point. And that then leads to the question, well, why didn't we do this earlier? And then that leads to the question about uncertainty and you make mistakes. And they're not necessarily mistakes. They may simply be that you made the best decision that was possible with the information that was available at some earlier time. But now more information is available and we know more. But, but openness about that, about why something was right is right now and was, you know, you, you have to be prepared to defend earlier decisions, even if... In hindsight, they've turned out to be wrong. You have to make the case that it was the best decision we could have made with the information available at the time. Frank, was there ever a time where you felt that you played the role of, of articulating or being a spokesperson for a, a government decision that wasn't exactly where you would have arrived at from on the basis of your kind of scientific advice? Well, I suppose it was an example where I kind of played almost the, the opposite role. I, was, I, I can remember I was speaking with, uh, I think it was the Royal Academy of Engineers, uh, over 
things like road pricing. And many of the engineers that were involved with implementing the London congestion charge were kind of upset a bit because they were forced to use what they viewed as antiquated technology, the CCTV and the, the various things that were there for security reasons around the centre of London. And many of these engineers had been involved with, with the sort of world-leading uh, road pricing schemes in places like Singapore or Hong Kong. Uh, and so they were saying, well, if we'd had eight years to do this, we could have done this, that and the other and had a much better system. And, uh, and I had to, I sort of basically said to them, look, the mayor has to be re-elected if he wants to carry on with this thing. Um, his requirement that the system be up and running before the next mayoral election is a constraint that you have to operate within because this is not a particularly interesting technological experiment. As you all know, you've done that experiment in lots of other places. This is a social and political experiment about whether a mayor can introduce congestion charging and be re-elected. That's the experiment that's going on. Um, so, you know, there was an example where one couldn't do the what appeared to be the cleanest engineering and scientific solution to, to this. But the constraints of, of government are reasonable constraints. I mean, you know, democracy has taken a long time to evolve and we don't want to change the rules of that because of uh, something that important as it is to the engineers doing it is essentially not on such a long time scale as our institutions. And if I can just add to that, the one thing that I think is really uh, you should never, ever do as a minister is ask an advisor to say something that he or she doesn't really believe in. Uh, because, you know, you see a bit of that, uh, you know, in different parts of the world today where advisors stand behind the person speaking, shifting uneasily because they're not entirely happy with it. You shouldn't do that. You know, you make your call and you can say, well, I agree with the advisor on this point. I don't, I'm taking a different view on another point. That's perfectly okay. But you shouldn't use, uh, if you like, um, your scientific advisor or any other advisor as a sort of human shield uh, for you, the politician. Thank you. I mean, I think this has been a very rich discussion and will be very, very helpful to sort of shed light on, on you know, how decisions are made and how advice and, and scientific advice and political decision making works in practice. Thanks to you both. And uh, Rob, you're absolutely right. This, is, this has been rich because you've extrapolated so much from your experience and been able to apply it to what's happening here. Um, and I think the Critical things that I've learned from this discussion is um, trust and communication, actually the foundations of, of anything that you do in terms of decision making. So really thoroughly enjoyed listening to, to both of you. Thank you so much for joining us. CSAP Science and Policy podcast is a production of the Centre for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge. This episode of our series on science, policy and pandemics has been produced in partnership with Cambridge Infectious Diseases and the Cambridge Immunology Network. This episode was hosted by Dr. Rob Doubleday and Selma Shaw and was produced by me, Kate McNeil. Our guests this week were Professor Frank Kelly and Lord Alistair Darling, Baron Darling of Rulinesh. You can learn more about CSAP's work by visiting us on Twitter at CSIPOL or by visiting our website at www.csap.cam.ac.uk. If you have feedback about this episode or questions you'd like us to address in a future week, please email inquiries at csap.cam.ac.uk. Thanks for listening.